Chapter 9 The Sphere of Instrumentality Jesus said, Remove the stone. John 11.39 Scripture Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. John 11.44 There lay Lazarus in the grave, dead. His restoration to life was utterly hopeless by any ordinary principles. Certainly Lazarus could not raise himself. His loving sisters could not, with all their weeping, give him a resurrection. Nor could the disciples call back the departed spirit and reanimate the decaying corpse. It was a hopeless case, for who could revive a dead man who had lain in the grave so long that he had begun to stink? This is a similar case to that of every unconverted sinner in the world. He is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 1. He is not just a little sick, lightly wounded, or has fainted, but spiritual death reigns over him. The sinner never gives life to himself. That is inconceivable. There are people who think that the natural will of man sometimes leans toward good, but sadly, this pleasing thought is far from the truth. Jesus said, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 5.40 People are not any more desirous to come now than they did then. Until we see dead people raising themselves, we don't expect to meet with sinners who have spontaneously and without divine assistance turned themselves toward righteousness. Nor can relatives or friends regenerate someone else's soul. Even the most earnest ministers cannot give out the spirit that makes the dead live. Those whom God has blessed in the past are still quite powerless in any new situation unless the same power works in and through them once again. Death is a terrible picture of our natural state, but it is by no means an exaggerated one. The whole world lies before us as a valley of dry bones according to Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel 37, and if the dry bones are ever to live, it will not be through an energy that is naturally found within themselves. It will not be through a power residing in the most zealous people, or even through any power that a prophet has, apart from God. Education cannot develop life out of death. Persuasion cannot produce it there, and reasoning cannot bring it about. The divine arm must be revealed, or the case is without hope. Jesus must come to the tomb of Lazarus, and his voice must cry out, Lazarus, come forth. John 11:43. Or else the corpse will remain lifeless and will increase in decay. All that can be done by mortal man may be done, but nothing will be accomplished until Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, will speak the life-giving word. The power lies in His omnipotent voice, and only there. Let this be taken as a plain statement of our belief as to the Lord's work in salvation, and let it be taken without any softening or dilution. We believe that in every case salvation is of the Lord alone and entirely. Regeneration is a supernatural work. We must be born again from above. 
any power less than the power from heaven will be futile. The new creation is as much and entirely the work of God as the old creation. Can aught beneath a power divine the stubborn will subdue? Tis thine, eternal spirit, thine, to form the heart anew, to chase the shades of death away and bid the sinner live, a beam of heaven, a vital ray, tis thine alone to give. Having said this, we proceed to bear witness that what can be done by us should be done, since what can be done by man will not be done by Christ. It is a rule with our Lord never to work needless miracles. Indeed, He only begins the miraculous when the ordinary means can go no further. He follows the ordinary up to its threshold, and then the extraordinary comes in. If a multitude needs to be fed, as long as there are barley loaves and fish available, Jesus will use them. He will multiply them and make them go further than they naturally could, but He will use them as far as they will go. If there had not been any bread or fish, I don't doubt that He would have embarked upon an act of creation. But since there were a few loaves and some fish, He did not ignore them, but made them the basis of a work of multiplication. John 6, 1-14 What a person can do for himself, God will not do for him. What Christians can do for sinners, they must not expect the Lord to do. They must themselves do what can be done according to the ability God has given them up to the point of possibility, and then they can look for divine intervention. Observe in this situation that there was a stone in front of the mouth of the cave in which Lazarus was buried. Could not our Lord have removed that stone with a word? Could He not have said, Roll away, O stone, and it would have been done? Yes, He could have consumed the stone with a glance if He had wanted to. But He didn't choose to do so because the bystanders were quite able to move the stone. Therefore He said to them, Remove the stone. When Lazarus was raised, when he had come forth from the hole in which his friends had laid him, he was clothed with the garments of the tomb. Rolls of linen were around his body, and a cloth was around his head. Jesus did not remove the clothing of the grave by divine power. It would have been a smaller miracle, if miracles can be compared, to loose the living with a word than it was to awaken the dead. But since it could be done without a miracle, it was done without a miracle. Jesus said to those who stood by, Unbind him and let him go. The analogy teaches us that there are some things that we can do for the unconverted and that we are obligated to do for them. There are certain other ways in which we can aid those who are newly converted, and these we should be quick to do. While we look only to the life-giving Lord to give life to the soul, we do not fold our arms in indifference or excuse ourselves from all effort because we say we are unable to do anything, but we are to be watching to see where human means are applicable. We should be ready at all times to be made useful wherever and however we can. We cannot turn the dry bones into living people. But we can proclaim God's word to them, and, blessed be God, we can also preach to the four winds, Ezekiel 37 9, 
and so by these means the dead may live. The subject now is the sphere of human action in connection with regeneration. Help us, O Divine Spirit. First, there are some things that we can do for the unconverted before they are given new life. Jesus said, Remove the stone. John 11.39. Second, there are some things that we can do for them after they have been made alive in Christ. Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. John 11.44. First then, dear brethren, there are some things that we can do for the unconverted before they are given new life. I am sure, if our hearts are right, we are very anxious to do all that can be done. Jesus Christ is our example, and observe how He labored in the work of blessing the sons of men. In this case He took a long journey, He wept, He groaned, He was troubled in spirit, He prayed, and then He spoke loudly. This is a true picture of what every Christian should be, and especially every Christian minister. We should journey after souls, we should weep over their ruined condition. We should groan for them and be troubled in heart on their account. We should be incessant in our prayers, and when God speaks through us to those who are dead in sins, it should not be with light-hearted tones, but with a voice tender of love and passionate with zeal. We are to be imitators of Christ in this. We should throw our whole heart into the blessed work that He honors us to do in His name. Brethren, we can all do for the ungodly what the sisters did for their brother. Mary and Martha called in the Master to minister to their sorrow. Being well assured when their brother was ill that they had no more sympathizing or capable friend in all the world than the Master whom they loved, they sent a message to Jesus. Although they did not send a second message afterward, I don't doubt that they felt that the first message was enough. So you and I, in the case of all the unconverted, over whom our spirit yearns, should call the Saviour to the rescue. Let us send a message to Him about them. You can word it in such a way as this, O Lord, I grieve to tell you that my dear child is still unsaved, or, Lord, you know that my heart breaks because my wife or husband is still unconverted, or, O Saviour, you know that there are children in my Sunday school class who have not yet been brought to you. Or, My God, you know that I have preached to many of these people for many years, and yet they are still unmoved and remain strangers to their God. We must earnestly intercede with the Lord for souls. Jesus can work wonders. He is the resurrection and the life and our wisdom is to lay hold upon His strength and to plead with Him to reveal His saving might. In addition to this, we must then express our confident faith in Jesus, that even now God will give to Him whatsoever He will ask of God. We must believe that He is able to raise the spiritually dead. We must never allow ourselves to despair of anyone since the matter is in the hands of an almighty Saviour. Although by this time the sinner has a stench, John 11.39, and has become immoral, as well as unholy, it is not too late to ask the Lord Jesus to work. 
We should never say of anyone, It would be vain for us to labor for his conversion, for he is so evil as to be incapable of grace. We are not merely to await man's condemnation, but rather we are to obey the Master's message and go into all the world with good news for every person. Matthew 28 19. For the gospel is without limitation when it declares that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16 16. Beloved, have faith in the Lord Jesus. Tell him how desperate the situation is for you, but say to him, Lord, it is not impossible with you. Tell him that while you feel that you have no power yourself, you are sure that one single word from him will accomplish all that your soul desires. Every believer can do this. With God's help, we can go by faith to the Lord Jesus. But our first text indicates even more clearly that we have a part to play. Jesus employed others to roll away the stone. You cannot make the dead live, but you can take the stone away from their sepulchre. Let us now look at certain stones that we should remove with all diligence. The first is the stone of ignorance. This heavy weight lies at the mouth of many spiritual graves at this day. I think we take for granted too high an attainment of knowledge among the people at this present time. I am sure that many sermons are preached to people as though they perfectly understood the plan of salvation. But if the preacher knew his hearers better, he would learn that many of them are deplorably ignorant even about the basic elements of the gospel of Christ. In fact, I am afraid that the elementary truths of Christianity are not preached sufficiently often because too much is taken for granted. It is to be feared that the basics of the gospel are unknown to thousands whose teachers are trying to instruct them in the classics of theology, a waste of effort and a dangerous experiment. Even in this city, you will find people who frequently attend Protestant churches who still believe in salvation by their own works and are horrified at justification by faith. You will discover, if you go among the people, such a large indifference to salvation that it is appalling, and this originates largely in ignorance. Salvation! Thousands don't know what you mean by the term, and here, in this century of light and advancement, as we boastfully call it, thick darkness covers the minds of a large proportion of our countrymen. Brethren, the time has not come for you to stop distributing the very plainest gospel tracts. The time has not arrived for you to be silent at the street corners about the first principles of the faith. You must still proclaim atonement by the sacrifice of Christ and the simple doctrine of justification by faith. There might possibly come an age when it will be wise to talk mainly upon the deep things of God, but for this present distress, we can wisely give our whole strength to telling out the foundational fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. Our sermons should often tell the story of the cross. The hymns most commonly sung should be those such as, Rock of Ages, a cleft for me, Jesus, lover of my soul, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, and 
just as I am without one plea. We even have need of such simple songs as, I do believe, I will believe, that Jesus died for me. Upon that basic point, ignorance and unbelief still cloud the majority of the people among whom we dwell. Let not the people be destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6. Let none go down to hell because they don't know of the Savior. Let me say here that even with those who have heard the gospel preached often, this ignorance may still remain, as it did in my own case. I believe that if I had known that all I had to do was to look to Christ and I would live, if I had really understood that there was nothing for me to be, feel, or do, but that I only had to rest in a finished work and take from God's mercy that which Christ had completed, I think I would have found peace with God sooner. However, I did not understand the gospel, and therefore remained in distress of mind. Do then tell everybody about Jesus. Tell them about the Son of God made flesh. Tell them about Christ dying in our place. Speak this word plainly. Tell them, He bore that we might never bear His Father's righteous ire. Assure them that whosoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, and that to believe is to trust. Then explain it further, for even plain and simple words can get to be technical, and people imagine that there is some other meaning in them than that which they usually have. You cannot put the gospel too plainly, but in any case do put it before them, and in this way roll away this stone from the mouth of the sepulchre. A second stone is the stone of absolute error. It's not good for the mind to be without knowledge, for if we don't sow wheat, weeds will certainly spring up. People ignorant of God's righteousness always go about to establish their own righteousness in some way or other. Romans 10.3. Thousands think that if they are sincere, honest, upright, and so on, they have done all that is required of them. They think that a little church attendance and some religious ceremonies can squeeze any deficiencies of their lives. Certainly to call in a pastor or minister when they are dying, and to have prayers said or read to them, will complete the process that they have themselves begun, they think. Brethren, this great stone covers many graves. Seek to roll it away. Bear your own personal protest against the idea that the law of God will ever be satisfied by an imperfect obedience. Teach people that God's commandment is exceedingly broad and that it deals with the thoughts and intents of the heart as well as with people's outward actions. When they realize this, maybe they will perceive the impossibility of ever keeping the law of God and they will stop trying to work out salvation by an obedience of their own. Show them plainly, lovingly, tenderly, and honestly that, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 You know well, my brethren, that people continually try to place a huge stone of error over other people's minds in the form of sacramentalism. To what do they degrade being born again? They make it a ceremony in which drops of water produce marvels. 
What is feeding upon Christ to these people? It's nothing but eating bread and drinking wine. They put ceremonial absurdities in the place of spiritual truths. They steal the substance and provide mere smoke as a substitute. They don't even give us a shadow as that of the days of Moses, but rather blind the eyes with smoke, and yet multitudes of our fellow creatures are quite content with such emptiness. They suppose that there is some mystic power in outward rites. Tell them that not all the outward forms of earth, nor rites that God has given, nor will of man, nor blood, nor birth, can raise a soul to heaven. Declare the need of grace and the uselessness of outward show. Teach the spirituality of acceptable worship and the childishness of ritualism. You will have done a good service if you roll away this huge obstruction. Very frequently, the sepulchre of people's souls is closed up by the stone of prejudice. People cannot really find anything wrong with Christ Jesus or his gospel, but they will still persist in stumbling at this stumbling stone. They make up reasons for declining the gospel invitation. They prejudge the revelation of God, and they make up their minds that it is unworthy of their acceptation. They close their eyes, and then are stubborn in their insistence that there is no light. For example, how common is the idea that Christianity is associated with gloominess or depression? In every sphere of life, you will find a number of people who fight without understanding Christianity because they believe it leads to misery of the mind. They quote someone who went insane and then began discussing biblical theories, and another who is full of gloom yet claims to be a Christian. They imply that Christianity is the science of making long faces, the art of being gloomy. Therefore, people refuse to be soured by crabby divinity and decline to imitate the gloomy and depressed Puritans. That is a big mistake about the Puritans, for there is more than enough evidence to show that they were among the most happy of people with a robust joy. At this present moment, if you want to find a happy group of people, I would advise you to search for them among the true followers of Jesus. It would be a strange thing if having one's sins forgiven would make a person unhappy. It would be a very odd thing if being at peace with God caused a person to be miserable. It would be a very turning of the world upside down if possessing a good hope of heaven would be the source of gloom in the soul. But it is not so. Brethren, roll away this stone by your continual happiness and obvious cheerfulness, and especially remove it from the minds of young people. Make them see, in the brightness of your countenance, the practical answer to the common false accusation. Convince them that you have an inward joy that they don't understand. Take them to Christ by telling them of the sweetness that you experience in Him. Many have the idea, too, that true Christianity makes a man unmanly and soft. Some who have professed to be Christians might have given support to this charge by their pretentious manners and lack of common sense. Certain people who claim to be Christians are always dwelling upon the must-nots of religion, 
as if godliness was a set of negatives, a garden enclosed with thorns. Making up new commandments is a very fascinating occupation for some people. You must not do this, that, and the other, until one feels like a toddler being scolded for everything. I find that ten commandments are more than I can keep without a deal of grace, and I do not intend to pay the slightest regard to any man-made commandments. Liberty is the genius of our faith, and we don't intend to trade it away for the esteem of modern Pharisees. They say to us, You shall not laugh on a Sunday. You shall never create a smile in the house of God. You shall go to a church service as though you were going to the whipping post. You shall take care when you preach that you always make your sermon as dull as it can possibly be. We do not reverence these precepts. We honor anything that is of God, but not the sickening decrees of human opinion. We are men and not slaves. Our manhood is not annihilated by grace. We think, speak, and act for ourselves, and we are not the servants of custom and fashion. We speak our minds even when propriety is shocked and respectability is enraged. I would always give to young men this piece of advice. Act like men, and do not let anyone have to say that your Christianity is weak and without a backbone. Do not always talk in a fake way with every person you speak of as dear this and dear that, for this savors of nauseous hypocrisy. Don't whine or turn up your eyes or pretend to be very devout. Be holy, but not showy. Be true, but not intrusive. Be men, be manly, be Christians, be like Christ. He was the very highest type of man. You never see anything fake or unnatural in him. He is always himself, transparent, outspoken, brave, honest, true, and manly. Redeem Christianity from the reproach of pompousness and formalism, and in doing so, roll away one of the stones from the sepulchre. We know that some people have an idea that Christianity is a mere sentiment or emotion, that it lies in being affected about your dead children and your parents in heaven, in weeping over deathbed scenes. In fact, some see Christianity as excited meetings and the consequent emotions. Some people of the world judge Christianity as consisting only in womanly feelings, thinking that it has no truth, facts, or logic. That is not so. We can give as good a reason for the hope that is in us as though Christianity never brought a tear to our eye and never stirred the emotion of joy within our souls. I venture to say that the Christian religion is as much based on facts as astronomy or geology. I am talking about indisputable historical facts, and I assert that the doctrines of divine revelation are truths as certain as the principles of mathematics. The gospel reveals certainties, and they are worthy of the contemplation of people of the wisest minds. Our gospel is not mere platitude and baby talk. There is a depth in it that no intellect can fathom. Titanic intellects have found their match in the things of God. The genius of Newton and Locke did not complain of lack of depth in the wondrous truths of God. 
to them they were waters to swim in. There is room for all the high culture, all the thought, and all the training that this world will ever see. There is room for it, and at its utmost it will only stand upon the shore of the main ocean of divine truth and cry, O the depths of the wisdom of the Lord! Romans 11.33 By intelligently setting forth the great matters of the gospel, let us roll this stone away, for to some it has been a crushing obstruction. Another stone very commonly lies over the grave among the working class of people, and that is the opinion that the gospel is not for them. I have frequently heard it said by them that it is very proper indeed for ladies and gentlemen and people of money and leisure to be Christians, but it is quite out of the question for someone who has to roll up his sleeves, work hard, and earn a living. They ask, What do dockyard laborers, cab drivers, and warehouse workers have to do with religion? Of all the strange prejudices in existence, this is one of the strangest, because from time immemorial it has been the boast of the gospel that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Matthew 11, 5. If there is one group of people to whom the gospel is more joyful tidings than to any other, it is to those who labor and are heavy laden. Matthew 11:28. Dear friends, if you only have a little in this life, that is even more reason why you should seek the unlimited treasures of the life to come. If you have much trouble and sorrow here, that is more reason why you should seek Christ to be the balm of all your wounds and the healing medicine of all your cares. Christianity gained its apostles from the working classes, and from that same source it has gathered countless martyrs. Although the Lord has had a remnant in the upper class, it remains true that not many mighty and noble people are called. 1 Corinthians 1.26 The great majority of Christian discipleship has been taken from among the poor and the working class of people. Besides, Christ is the people's Christ. What a wonderful sentence that is from the Psalms, I have exalted one chosen from the people. Psalm 89, 19. Jesus is the people's man by birth, by education, and by sympathy. He was ordained of God to be a leader and commander for the people. Jesus Christ is just such a friend as the people need. Tell the people so, especially you who belong to them and know it. Make your houses preaching places to your fellow workers, and make your conduct a constant sermon about adapting the gospel of Jesus Christ to their needs. So much for the stone of prejudice, but I must move on. Frequently over the graves of spiritually dead persons there lies a stone of loneliness. They feel as if no one cares for their soul. I have known that to happen in this church, in our own London Metropolitan Tabernacle. People have attended for months, and nobody has spoken to them because they were strangers. Therefore, the gospel did not enter into their hearts because they said, The church of God doesn't care for us, we are unknown and unvalued. Half a word from some kind Christian sitting near them has often been the means of melting them down 
and the very next sermon they have heard has been, in God's hands, the means of bringing them to Christ. A person can lose himself in this city more completely than he could in the desert of Sahara. You can get away into one of our streets and even work in one of our factories, and nobody will interest himself about you. While a few people might pry into their neighbor's affairs, even fewer have any sympathy for their neighbor's griefs. Hearts may be breaking around us while we are as merry as may. Children of God, I urge you, in the name of the life-giving Savior, never let this stone lie two Sundays together over the grave of a single person who attends this church, but prove to those who sit with you here that you have a loving care for their souls. Another stone that can be rolled away is that of degradation. Some people take themselves into the ditch by their sins. They break the rules of society, they become dangerous, and in time they are treated as outcasts. When a person feels himself banned, how little hope there is of raising him! Many sink themselves to poverty by their sins and excesses, and thousands degrade themselves by abominable drunkenness. The Christian church does well when it uses its utmost power to deliver the drunkard from his besetting sin. Abstinence from alcohol will not take the place of godliness, but it might put people in the way of gospel influences. God forbid that we should stop short in any reforms, for we must completely roll away the stone from the grave, and we must not let any stone remain. Many people have first been delivered from the habit of intoxication, and then their ears have been opened to listen to the truth as it is in Jesus. The poor prostitute, too, when Christian love has followed her and spoken to her about our Father who is in heaven and who desires the wandering to return to Him, how often have her feelings of degradation been overcome and she has fled to Christ for mercy! Brethren, none are outcasts to us. If the world says to the fallen, Get out of here, you're not good enough for us, let the church of God open her door and invite the outcasts in. The church is the true hospital for those sick in sin, among whom Jesus delights to work. It is our glory to restore those whom the world calls lepers and contemptuously drives away. Come here, you chief of sinners, for Jesus waits to receive you. Don't delay, for He came to save you and those like you. The Pharisees drive you away, but this man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke 15, 2. We will mention one more stone, and that is the stone of despair. Some people are not only spiritually dead, but they are buried very deep in despair. They have signed their own death warrants, even though the Lord has not yet written them out. You people of God, keep a watchful eye out for those who think they are beyond all hope, and when you meet with them, argue the point with them. Tell them that you were once in the same situation as they are, and show them what grace did for you. Point them to the promises of God that are so suitable to their condition. Above all, tell them of the precious Saviour, who doesn't put out the smoldering wick, Matthew 12:20, and who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, Hebrews 7:25. 
you will have done a good thing if you roll away the stone of despair. I exhort you, dear fellow laborers in Christ, you who are saved, do all that you can to take away every one of these hindrances from the souls of sinners, and then pray to the Lord to speak the life-giving word. Second, there are some things that we can do for people after they have been made alive in Christ. After a person is converted, he labors under many disadvantages, and Christian love should help him. When lambs are born, the shepherd takes care of them. Christ tells us to feed his lambs. John 21:15. When plants are put into the ground, they must be watered. It's not enough that the child is born, but he needs a mother's care. Scripture Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Exodus 2 9 is God's word to his people whenever a new convert is born into his family. Lazarus is alive, but he is weighed down with grave clothes. It's the duty of his friends to loose him and let him go. New converts need to be set free for the sake of their own comfort. It was a very uncomfortable thing for Lazarus to be tied up in his burial clothes. For his own comfort, they must be taken off. When a person is saved, he might not grasp all that is involved in salvation. He thinks, I am a Christian, but I can fall from grace. Unwrap that cloth at once, and let him know that the Lord does not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Romans 11, 2. He thinks that he is forgiven, but he also thinks that some sin might still remain upon him. Unwind that cloth, and let him know that the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Maybe when he feels strife within himself, he imagines that he is not really a child of God. Tear off that bandage, and tell him that all children of God experience inward strife and feel a battle raging between life and death within their souls. You will find that new converts tend to be the victims of doubts and fears, worrying themselves about this and that. You who are instructed in the faith must make a sincere effort to unbind them and let them go. New converts also need to be set free for the sake of their own freedom. Lazarus might as well be in the grave as bound in burial cloths. People can be converted and yet be far from enjoying the full liberty of the children of God. Maybe the saved one is chained by bad habits, but he doesn't know that they are bad. Tell him gently, but let him know that these things are not consistent with a Christian life. I know some real Christians who are going around with remnants of their grave clothes upon them, and they appear very improper. Those grave clothes cling to all of us, more or less. I suppose that the unbinding will need to be continued until we enter heaven. But let's help our brethren in this, by example, and by precept. Let's take away from them that which hinders them from the liberty of holiness. Moreover, Lazarus needed to be unbound for the sake of fellowship. He couldn't talk with Mary and Martha yet, for he had a cloth around his head. He could hardly move or speak. So many of our dear converts do not like to join the church yet. They say they're not perfect. 
poor souls. If they were perfect, we would not want them in our churches. Since none of us are perfect, they would be out of place if they joined with us. They plead that they are not fit to come, imagining that something more is needed beyond believing in Christ, as if that which Jesus laid down as the gospel of salvation was not also a sufficient basis for fellowship with saints on earth. Still, the timid hold back and do not like to tell others what the Lord has done for them. Encourage them and compel them to come in. Don't let them wander in solitude, but introduce them to the fellowship of the saints. We have known cases in which liberty was needed to enable new converts to bear testimony. Lazarus could not even say, I live, and blessed be the name of God, for the cloth was around his head. He had to be unbound so that he could tell others what God had done. Oh, what pleasant testimonies the church might have if saints were only encouraged to deliver them! But there are some who disapprove and hinder, and the moment a young Christian talks about Christ because he doesn't speak exactly according to traditional doctrine, they try to silence him. Let it never be so among us. Let us encourage the infant converts to cry so that soon they will learn to speak. Let us encourage them to babble, for perhaps before long they will correctly speak the language of the kingdom. Just as their testimonies are needed, so their service is needed. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, but he didn't know what God intended to do with him, and he was not ready for God to use until Ananias had instructed him. Acts 9, 6. It was the same with Apollos. He was a true Christian, but he needed further teaching. Acts 18.26. He needed to be unbound and let go, and Aquila and Priscilla became the instruments of doing so. There was the eunuch on his way to Ethiopia. He needed to learn more about the Scriptures to have the meaning of the prophet Isaiah opened up to him, and to be baptized on profession of his faith in Christ. Acts 8.26-40. Don't allow any of God's dear living ones to be waiting bound up and captive because we are so devoid of brotherly love that we will not do for them the needful duties of heavenly love and kindness. May the Lord help us, brethren, to be earnest about this. After Lazarus was unbound, we read that he sat at the table with Jesus. He needed to be unbound so that he could enjoy communion with Christ. The trembling convert thinks himself not yet permitted to lay hold upon the nearer, dearer, and sweeter joys that surround the person of Christ. He thinks that these are reserved for old, mature saints, and that they are for people who have fought the good fight and almost finished their course. 1 Timothy 4 7. But he certainly errs and deprives himself of joy. The songs of Zion are for the early morning as well as for the shades of evening. Go and tell young Christians so. Encourage them to commune with Jesus. Tell them that he loves all his people with an equal love and is ready to make himself known to them as he does not unto the world. John 14:22. In this aspect, you will unbind them and let them go. I will finish with two questions that I want to put very plainly. The first is this. Dear brethren, 
I have told you what can be done for sinners before conversion. I have told you what can be done for them afterward. I want to ask how many of you are doing either one. I will not take my pen and make a list of the diligent among you, but I will ask each person's conscience to act as a scribe and to write down your name if you are really serving Christ. Beloved, it does no good to merely talk about our duty. We must be daily and constantly doing it. Time is gliding away, people are dying, hell is filling, and Christ's name is being dishonored. There are only twelve hours in the day. Are we walking while we have the light? John 12:35. And are we working for God while we have the opportunity? If every one of us will give an honest answer to that question, it will do us good, even if we have to confess that we have been lazy. Asking ourselves that question might lead to shame, and then to confession, to prayer, and to a renovation of life. For if we are indeed the Lord's, let us live while we live. Much of professing Christian life nowadays is something to be ashamed of. It's cold, weak, narrow, and faint-hearted. I see passion and devotion everywhere except among Christians. I see drive and push and vigor in business. I see the world encircled so that people can send the messages of commerce with lightning speed, while the message of the gospel lags behind. I see the mountains cut out, and it may be next that the sea's deep bed may be tunneled. People do anything for the things of this world, but how little will they do for the things of heaven? May God revive us so that we will be a living, earnest people. The other question is this How far is the Lord Jesus working in our families and among our acquaintances in the matter of raising the spiritually dead? Are your children saved yet? Are your employees regenerated yet? Are your brothers and sisters saved yet? Has God given new life to your husbands and wives? Come, let us ask this question to others, too. The angel asked Lot, Do you have any others here? Genesis 19.12. That is a very serious question. Oh, that God would grant that we would be like Noah, who had all his sons and his sons' wives and his own wife, in the ark with him. May we never stop praying until it is so. If there is even one unconverted person who is linked with us in any way, let us pray day and night until that soul is saved, and then let us go after the neighborhood in which we dwell and the streets where we reside. May God help this great city, this perishing city, and visit it in mercy. I believe He will. If he finds us willing to do the work of rolling away the stone and being equally willing to unloose the burial cloths, God will not send children to us if we cannot nurse them. He will not send lambs to us if we will not shepherd them. God is not so unkind to newborn souls as to send them among a people who do not care for them. He will make us travail in birth before children will be born to God here because soul travail is the means by which love works in us toward them, so that we are taught to handle them affectionately, 
cherish them carefully, and bring them up for the Lord. O beloved Christians over whom Christ rejoices, I ask you to serve the Lord Jesus with diligence in this divine service of doing good to the sons of men. God bless you, beloved, for Christ's sake. Amen.